what is a, a niche versus a, a solution that can really be impactful to climate overall. And, you know, for us, that's, um, you know, technologies that have the cap capability of creating gigaton CO2 per year impact. Um, once they are, you know, fully scaled up and, and deployed in the market. Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at POSI, the number two IVE. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture-scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zach Alain, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is Jason Holt, an investor with Baruch Future Ventures, a family office focused on resource technologies. He has a PhD in chemical engineering from Caltech and years of experience in investing. He's calling in today from the Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you today. As normal, we, we lay out a show into three sections and we'll be covering first, uh, you as the scientist, next, policy and the market, and last, resource tech. We have a lot of exciting ground to cover today, and I think our listeners will find the show to be both illuminating and inspiring as a call to action. So I want to just jump right into section one about you as the scientist. How did you find your way to impact investing? Yeah, well, it's been a long journey, I think, going back to my days as, a, as an undergraduate um, in the mid-90s. I, I started an undergraduate research project working on you know something that at the time I didn't give much thought to or had not really connected the dots, but I, I worked in an atmospheric chemistry research group at UC Irvine and was measuring uh, you know, methane concentrations in canisters that come from all these field projects that my uh, that my colleagues had been on, who, you know, or who were mostly graduate students. Um, but you know, this was just one piece of a, a much larger set of projects and problems that this you know this group was was working on and my my undergraduate advisor uh sherwood Rowland, was uh best known for uh, being the you know the scientist back in the 70s who started making connections between these things called cfc's uh chlorofluorocarbons uh and ozone degradation and you know it's a really interesting saga that we probably <laughs> don't have time to, to go into a, a lot of depth in, but, you know, he, he was somebody whose, whose work was, was heavily criticized and I think was, you know, ridiculed at the time. Nobody, you know, really believed him and the, the notion of a hole in our ozone layer was, uh, you know, was, many, many people tried to debunk that at the time, but, you know, fast forward 20 years, the, the science on that became rock solid and, while I was in uh, in that group, he won the Nobel Prize in 1995, which was a it was a, a huge deal. It was the uh, it was actually a, another Nobel Prize in physics awarded to uh, to Irvine that year as well, and they they had no Nobel laureates prior to that. Um, and just for me to be there at the time when that happened was just a, a huge eye opener. I <laughs> I all of a sudden sort of began to connect dots in my head, you know, between what I was doing and a you know, larger kind of global uh, climate problems and, you know, issues and resources that I'd never really thought about before. And that was really, I think, probably what uh, spurred me on to uh, to apply to graduate school, because I think prior, prior to those experiences and kind of getting the bug for, um, you know, real impactful research of this kind, the idea of going to grad school never really occurred to me. 
Um, and that's that's what led to me going to to Caltech. Um, I, uh, I started a PhD program there in the late '90s, and although I I started off uh, kind of continuing somewhat in that area and uh, atmospheric chemistry and physics, and began some you know early work. One of my my first projects was was also in the area of atmospheric chemistry and, uh, and physics and and looking at aerosol particles, but ultimately I found myself working in, in solar energy. So it's, you know, still kept with the theme of um, resource tech or, you know, climate tech or clean tech as, as, you know, as it came to be known. But I, you know, I, I think I, I knew at the time that, you know, academia wasn't, wasn't really for me long-term. I felt that there was a, I had this itch to take the next step, beyond just doing the research and then, you know, handing it off to somebody else, you know, an entrepreneur or, or a company to, to commercialize. I, I knew that I wanted to do something like that, but uh, I think at the time, you know, coming out of grad school in the early 2000s, I really didn't have the, the skill set necessary to, you know, even contemplate starting a company. So I, I kind of put those entrepreneurial ambitions on pause uh, and, uh, Took a somewhat more pragmatic approach and, and entered industry. I uh, was working at uh, at Intel uh, for some time as a as a process engineer. But I I fairly quickly realized that that was that was also not for me. It was, it was a great experience, but it, it really took me away from this path. You know, this path now that I'm looking back with 20 plus years of, of hindsight is a lot more clear. <laughs> So that was, uh, you know, the, the experience there in industry was a little bit of an aberration. I realized I, you know, if I wanted to start a company, I wanted to do something really, really impactful. I, I, I needed to retrain myself, kind of diversify my my research and my, you know, my, my scientific background so that I could uh, come up with something that would ultimately be commercializable and I could, could find, you know, financial backers for. And, and was, uh, and was your focus at that time geared toward climate and or solar the same? Yeah, I think in, in in a sense, I you know when, when I left when I left Intel, I, this is when I, I came here to the Bay Area in you know two thousand three. I I was still interested in, in you know something something in in and around the you know the climate and the resources, clean tech space. I think at, at that time that's you know when the, the term clean tech you know was just kind of starting to come in come into vogue. Um, I wasn't sure You're if I wanted to continue. Two thousand seven or two thousand six, something like that. Yeah, I forget exactly the the you know, the the inception there. My my advisor from from back in grad school had had started his first company then, and it was in the solar space. And you know what they were working on wasn't really for me. I felt like I wanted to kind of chart my own path. So I, I you know in the back of my mind, I knew I you know the the, the longer term plan for me or the the five year plan back then was to start a company. But I I felt like I needed to. As I said, I, I needed to have some time to uh, get into the playground, so to speak, the, re- the research playground and work on a whole slew of different projects and kind of, you know, sort through those and, and, and think which of those really would be, um, you know, could form the, the kernel of a, of a company. So, you know, that's what brought me to, to Livermore Labs. I was there for five years as a, as a staff scientist. It was really, a, you know, a great experience, I think, that, you know, the positive things about it are is, you know, if you're an early career scientist, you, you do get that opportunity to play around, work on a variety of different projects. You can oftentimes bring in 
grant funding from the outside, from you know places like the Department of Energy. The knock on it is, though, if you stay there too long, I think you you uh, you kind of grow barnacles yeah. <laughs> on, on yourself, and it's and you inevitably pull yourself into work in in the defense area, which is is not for some people. It is as many people might know, it is along with Los Alamos, one of the two, you know, remaining weapons labs we have in, in the U.S. And you ultimately, just to pay your own salary, you have to eventually get yourself into that. And I, I you know, I knew I didn't want to do that long term. I would rather work on you know, projects of my own, my own choosing. But, um, you know, long story short, the, um, you know, in 2006, uh, one of, one of the projects that I was, was working on and had raised some funding for was in the area of water purification. And, um, you know, my group had developed a, essentially a, a next generation uh, membrane that could be used for, uh, for desalination uh, involving these, uh, these materials called carbon nanotubes. And the, um, the, you know, the promise of these membranes is to help lower the pressure and thus lower the energy and the cost of desalinating seawater. Um, and we, you know, we got a science paper, you know, published in 2006 it was a cover article, you know, generated a, a ton of press and, and, and interest in what we were doing. Um, and it, it, uh, you know, not just from the scientific community, but from folks in the venture capital community. And this is, um, <laughs> this is a story I, I, I tell other entrepreneurs, you know, this this is not a recipe for how you you start a company. This is an aberration, so don't copy this <laughs> don't copy this playbook because it it is uh, exceptionally rare that you you know you publish a science article and a VC reads it and they're like, will you please start a company? Here's wow. a check. <laughs> that is yes, I imagine. But that is exactly what happened. It was a, a unique set of circumstances, and, it, and you know, it was with a, a venture capital firm that uh, that is still around called Exceed Capital, um, that had a lot of bright, you know, scientifically minded um, investors there. Um, you know, and it, it 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 may have sounded like from all of the proceeding that I that I told you that it would be a no brainer, uh, and I would you know sign on the dotted line, but it didn't exactly unfold that way it, it took a lot of arm twisting on on their part and probably you know most other rational investors rational investors would have walk, walked away but mm-hmm. um you know part of the part of the math for me was really you know deciding well geez you know this is what i've in the back of my mind this is what i said i've always wanted to do but you know is this technology really de-risked enough shouldn't i spend more time kind of maturing it within the lab before i go spinning it out and these are totally reasonable things to think about. It's what, how investors think about, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, evaluating seed stage companies as well. But I, uh, you know, the other part of it too, was just the, the bigger question, like, do I want to leave the lab here? Cause I had, you know, a, a staff scientist position there, kind of the equivalent of tenure, um, like you would have in academia. So, you know, it wasn't a decision I came by lightly. One thing led to another. And I think I, I eventually came around to the idea that this is something I really couldn't pass up and, I sort of knew this is not how people get their their company started, and I, <laughs> if I passed this opportunity up, I wasn't going to get another call from a VC, you know, concerning some other paper I might write in the future. So I, <laughs> I thought this was, you know, this was the right time to leave. And so, um, along with another colleague of mine from the lab, we started a, a company in 2008 called Nanoasis, uh, and that was kind of the uh, beginning of my 
entrepreneurial and later uh, you know investor journey. Oh, you would have made Buckminster Fuller very proud, I imagine. Right, right. <laughs> that's amazing. It's such a great story. Yeah, so that's you know that was back you know since going back twelve years. I can I can catch you up on the additional things that that happened in the inter- intervening years. If that would be uh, yeah, know, would I, I be think interesting. you really outlined it well. I the couple things that stood out from your background was working with Propel X, which I believe has a platform for frontier tech and crowdfunding space, which I found quite interesting. Uh, maybe you could speak about that experience a bit. Sure. Yeah. I, I met that team, you know, that was probably, you know, four years after where I, I left off there in, in, in the story. Um, it was actually after we eventually sold um, sold that company, NanoAsis, um, you know, to, to uh, another company looking to uh, commercialize that IP for, for other applications. Uh, you know, on PropelX, I met uh, I met that team. I don't remember how we were introduced. It, it might have been by my by my investor colleague Tom, uh, but they were uh, two MIT grads. I think they both went to Sloan and and had a uh, an angel investing club that they ran uh, at MIT while they were there. And they were looking for a you know a platform to help commercialize hard tech or you know deep tech innovation. And I think the the, the problem they were trying to solve, and this like totally resonated with me, which is why I've been been involved with them since since the start, is that you know there's there's a lot of angel capital out there. There's a lot of people that want to deploy this money into um, the deep tech space or the impact space, but the field is so heterogeneous technologically and requires so much subject matter expertise that. Most of the time, diligencing one of these opportunities for an angel investor is just a, such a huge undertaking, and they don't they don't have the time and the resources to do it, or they don't want to try to retain a consultant to evaluate this one company that they may only be writing a 25k check for. So they they created a platform that essentially, you know, crowdsources that entire process, which I I I continue to believe is a is a great idea. It it brings together. You know, a bunch of different entities, the subject matter experts who get onto the platform, um, the angel investors, you know, um, you know, who want to invest in, in these companies and then, you know, the, the companies themselves. They've been, they've been quite successful, I think, you know, starting from pretty humble beginnings and have since raised their own separate fund as well that allows them to write checks alongside the, uh, the angel investors. I would love to get them on the show as well, but let's let's break out into the um, the core of of what we're going to be discussing around uh, greenhouse gases and a continuation of CFCs. I also want to talk more about your work. Talk about the policy in the market. So, can you give us a background on the greenhouse gas market today, and um, I guess both internationally and in the U.S. It's it's pretty hodgepodge, I, I would say. I. I one thing I think I'd, I'd like to say as as background here, you know, for you know for scientists and, and entrepreneurs, and, and this is the thing that I learned as as an undergraduate working in a you know a a, a climate focused research group is that you know you can't as a scientist or an entrepreneur in the space you really can't live in a policy vacuum, you know, because you know if if I look at the levels of impact that you can create, you know, you start. Being a scientist, and then you, as I've done, you know, make make the leap to being an entrepreneur, you know, putting you ever closer to the you know, to the finish line, so to speak. And then the next step with becoming an investor, where you 
you know, you work on a whole portfolio of, you know, of, of companies, you know, that I, I say influencing policy and, you know, driving policy is even higher up on, on, on the ladder of influence or impact than, uh, than any of those things, because with the right policy incentives in place, you can influence or create entire new industries that, you know, that, that don't, you know, that may not even exist today. So, you know, I, I, you know, we have, you know, we as in my, myself and my, my colleague Tom at the, uh, the family office I work with, um, spent a lot of time thinking through policy and, 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 and looking at, you know, what could be the most uh, impactful way to, to spur some of these technologies along, or at least give them a little bit of, a, um, you know, some catalyst to get, to get started. And, you know, that's, this is how the solar energy was, you know, was created out of nothing, essentially. Right? You know, back when I was in in, in graduate school, um, you know, the, the price per watt of solar was was astronomical, and it was only through really, you know, rational subsidies, as you know, happened in you know in Germany and other other parts of the world, that really helped solar industry become become what it is today. Um, but you know, there has to be a a phase out of those two, you, you eventually, you know, you, you can't support an entire industry on, uh, you know, on soft money. Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. needs, needs to be able to stand on its own two feet. And, you know, fortunately this, we've seen this, this is what happened with solar and, and wind. And now in the absence of, um, you know, those, those incentives, it's, uh, it, it's cost competitive with or undercuts our, you know, our legacy forms of energy. In fact, that you know, today it is cheaper to build a new utility-scale solar plant than it is to keep an existing coal-fired power plant operational, Amazing. a fully depreciated <laughs> factory. So that's, I mean, that's, <clears throat> I think, a, a case study in what you know, judicious, uh, you know, application of subsidies and you know, policy can do for for industries. And and I think we need, um, you know, we need a an overarching one like that for for carbon instead of this piecemeal thing that we have right now and you know we have some really some nice incentives in place in uh, in california and things like a you know low carbon fuel standard um but it's uh to, to no one's surprise we have we have nothing really operating at the federal level um and i i think that you know that's that's urgently needed if we want to meet meet some of the more ambitious climate goals out there. Understood. I think yet just a few days ago, I read about California initiative to, uh, by, I guess by 2030, they, they won't allow the sale of new gas gasoline powered cars. That's right. 2035. 20, so I was, uh, <laughs> I, I was remarking to a colleague on, on LinkedIn when I think he, he blasted that out. I said, I would be just in time for my one year old to get her first electric vehicle. So, <laughs> Yeah, that, either that or maybe an old Camaro or something. Yeah, or 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 my my what will be very old Model Three at that point. <laughs> yes. What? Well, I guess just to, to steer us in the right direction, what opportunities exist in the carbon market uh, regarding prospective policy changes, the way you see it, outside of um, certain political leaders swaying decision? Oh, uh, you mean in term in terms of you know concepts that, that have been. Proposed, although yeah, it's not, yeah, not, not yet enacted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, 
one idea that I've I've always really liked. I, I thought it looked great on paper. I, I neither I nor even the most you know optimistically minded people ever thought it had a chance to <laughs> uh, get through Congress. Uh, but maybe that will you know, that will change in the in the coming months or, or years. Was a idea of a carbon dividend, and you know I think a bunch of people got behind this. I think Bloomberg, uh, Mike Bloomberg. Back this at some point, and I, I first heard about it from uh, I think it was a senator from from Maryland, uh, Van Hollen. Uh, and this was, I think it was called the Van Hollen Act. Um, and the idea was, you know, creating a you know something um, you know akin to a, a carbon tax or a fee, but with a mechanism that would, in essence, spread that across the, the taxpayer base. So, you know, it the the the, the knock on you know most forms of carbon taxation is that you know the producers the energy companies are just going to simply pass that right on to the consumers and you know and it's going to disproportionately impact you know people are in the uh, you know uh, lower lower economic right those who have to commute longer uh, for work and price at the pump kind of thing yeah yeah and it's you know those things of that you know nature are just kind of dead on arrival um, but the this carbon dividend was really interesting in that it's, you know, the idea was for it to be a fee and a, and a rising fee, you know, over time on on fossil fuel that's imposed upstream, you know, at the producers, but it would get returned back to homes as a you know, monthly or, or quarterly dividend. And the, you know, for the most part, it would be totally cost neutral to them. But while while providing this, you know, in, incentive mechanism for the energy companies to, you know, to decarbonize, you know, particularly you know, ones here in the, the U.S. So I think it's quite obvious they're behind their European counterparts with their you know, their strategies and renewables. And, and there was a, you know, I was refreshing my memory on this a couple of weeks ago. There was a study that actually showed that. Uh, two-thirds of uh, households in the U.S. would actually receive more in dividends than they would be expected to pay in higher prices, you know, at the pump or, you know, wherever else those, you know, costs for implementing this would, would have been, you know, passed on to, um, you, know, you know, to good. So it not just, it wouldn't just be cost neutral, it would, it would actually be cost positive for a large proportion of the population. So I'm I don't know where that sits right now, or if uh, Van Hollen or other, you know, Congress people are, you know, are still pushing for this. But I think it was one of the more sensible ideas out there, and you know, hopefully in a, uh, a different DC environment, it it may stand a chance the next time it makes its way through. Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement there. It sounds like a, pre- a pretty sensible approach. I remember, I believe it was back in 2010, the American. Climate Act, I believe that was the name of it. Um, the cap and trade program was kind of introduced to uh, allow parties to sell excess allocations, um, kind of based on uh, lowering their their um, relative pollution technologies and investing and such. And this sounds a little bit more like a carbon tax, but I think it's one that, like you say, it, it steps up and doesn't create a lot of excess pain uh, at you know at the pump, so to speak, right right at initially type yeah. of thing. That sounds pretty sensible. I also recall yeah. a policy, I think it was in British Columbia, where they, I think they had some type of cap and trade or tax system, some, I, th- I don't know if it's still active, but they reinvested the 
the tax, I believe, back into startups that had kind of a clean tech, climate tech uh, component. Yeah, I think I yeah, vaguely remember something, something similar to that. You get into that problem of the government, quote unquote, picking the winners aspect. And I, I think I think the one you're suggesting seems like a pretty sensible solution. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I, I was I was practicing my comments saying that, you know, scientists need to be and entrepreneurs need to be more aware of this stuff. I think I've, you know, furthermore, I think they need to, you know, for those that don't see themselves going into into academia or starting companies, you know, more of these people need to get get to D.C. and start <laughs> influencing, um, you know, the, the decision-making. You know, there's, a, there's one representative from, from Illinois that I, I started following on, on Twitter, and I was just kind of blown away. I forget exactly his academic training, but he is like a serious energy policy wonk, um, you know. And I, I think we really need more people like that in in Washington because th- those are the people that are ultimately, I think, gonna gonna catalyze this sort of thing and and, and ensure that you know bills like this really get to get to see the light of day. Talking about that American. Was it the American Climate Act? I can't remember the name. I'll, I'll get that in the notes. But I, I felt as though it was quite frustrating to see how close uh, a sensible policy reached the Senate, but it got kind of squashed in committee and such. And and having the right political actors that they can support these sensible decisions, like you say, it's just it's a must. I agree. Yeah, somebody somebody who knows how it works. It, they don't have to rely on staffers to uh, to explain it to them over and over again. <laughs> Good point. You know that, that makes makes all the difference in the world. Excellent. Well, let's move into what you're currently focused on, um, primarily resource tech. Uh, can you help me understand what that that means to you and um, how we can understand more about it? And how does it tie into carbon? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll, I'll take a quick step back into into what I'm doing today because I, I I left a little bit of a, a gap there in my resume. But uh, you know, since um, since 2012, I've been uh, I've been working with a family office called Berg Future Ventures that you you mentioned at the outset, uh, and my colleague Tom Berg, who's a you know veteran in the venture capital industry and has been a great mentor to me over the last eight years. Um, he he started his family office. Um, you know, in 2012, and, and I got connected to him through the Kaufman Foundation. It, it, you know, the purpose of his family office was, you know, to allow him to be singularly focused on investing in you know, the resource tech and the you know, the climate tech space. Because his, you know, his his prior investment career was working largely with a fund he started called CNEA Capital that, you know, that did a little bit of what. You know what we're we're talking about here in the resources area, but uh, I think you know he started the family office so that he could be even more singularly focused on on this space, and and it really encompasses five main verticals: it's energy systems, um, air quality, water quality, uh, and food and ag. Those are the kind of primary markets or the verticals that we operate in. So, you know. Essentially, anything that you can um, conceive of as a, as a as a major resource is something that you know, falls within our, our purview. Um, and and CO two is or dec- let's say call it decarbonization generally is one of the big overarching themes of what we do, and that 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 impacts 
you know, all of those, you know, those four markets or verticals that, that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, some people are more, uh, you know, quantitative about this than, than others, but we, you know, I, you know, when, when we talk about decarbonization, um, I, I think it helps to establish kind of a order of magnitude because it, it helps you decide as an investor kind of what is, you know, in scope or, or out of scope or, or what is a, a niche versus a, a solution that can really be impactful to climate overall. And, you know, for us, that's, uh, you know, technologies that have the cap- capability of creating gigaton CO2 per year impact um, once they are, you know, fully scaled up and, and deployed in the market. Um, and, you know, we, we work closely with um, groups like Breakthrough Energy Ventures and have co-invested with them on a, on a number of deals so far. And, and they, they have a very similar metric, I think, you know, between a half to a gigaton of, per year of CO2. And that's Bill Gates' fund, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, he was the the anchor limited partner in that fund. Uh, and me, they yes. have yeah, and they have nineteen nineteen other billionaires that um, um, you know as as yeah, as LPs in that fund. Fantastic. You um, you and I spoke a little bit about um, hi- the hydrogen economy and uh, opportunities to see greenhouse gases in a new light. Would you be willing to share more about that with the audience? Sure. Yeah, um, and I'll, you know, it probably makes sense for me to at least discuss obliquely, uh, you know, a company that we recently invested in. I, I won't mention them by name because I think they, they still want to remain somewhat stealth. But, um, you know, hydrogen from our point of view is is, is really a one of the key linchpins of a, of a future, you know, you know low-carbon low future. It's, um, it's I, I didn't quite fill in the story on CO2, but I, I could do that as well. And, you Please. know, what, what, you know, companies that were interested in looking at CO2, but, you know, as we talked about, I think on a, an earlier discussion, you know, CO2 and hydrogen, I think are the, you know, the two key feedstocks for, you know, this kind of transformed decarbonized economy that we, you know, that we want to have, you know, CO2 is the, is the problematic, you know, waste, waste gas that we're trying to get rid of. But, in, in tandem with hydrogen, you can you can use those two chemicals to, in principle, make any chemical under the sun that is presently being made from petroleum feedstocks. And you know, it's a that's the that's kind of the, the bold you know decades long vision. And you know, and it's uh, it's uh, you know, technically quite challenging, but I you know I think we can get there. Um, and you know, the reason you know we recently invested in in hydrogen um, is, you know, we've, we've been tracking the space for, for many years. There were, you know, going back a, a decade or more, um, there was a, a lot of excitement about a, a future hydrogen economy. But frankly, I think, um, you know, the, the technologies were not there at the time. And the, the idea of economically splitting water to make hydrogen just made, made no sense, um, you know, as, as you or Listeners may know the the vast majority of the hydrogen that we make today comes from natural gas, and um, in so doing, you generate you know huge amounts of of CO two, and and that is the the central problem with the our, our conventional way of making hydrogen, or what you know people in the space would call brown <laughs> hydrogen or, or dirty hydrogen. 
but the you know the what people have been trying to do for many years or, or decades is to use uh, you know equipment called electrolyzers to allow you to efficiently split water into hydrogen and, and oxygen um, and you know we for many years saw lots of companies trying to do this um, none of which we could believe had a chance to get to price parity with with conventional the conventional means of making hydrogen steam methane reforming but you know after a very long search we we believe we have have found that company um, and that's you know that's what really really got us uh, excited and I think you know re rekindled our our interest in the space Jason what what role do you see hydrogen playing in transportation yeah it's I think when when most people hear hydrogen that's what you know immediately comes to mind are the mobility applications and Although a lot of the, you know, the auto OEMs like Toyota and Honda have come out with, you know, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, um, you know, we've never been a really, really excited about that that space. And I think, you know, with you seeing the proliferation of electric vehicles today, I think it makes even more sense. Um, you know, Elon Musk on Twitter, every time he gets asked about this, just says bluntly, it's, it's a stupid idea. And, <laughs> uh, and I, I think the reason for that is <clears throat> based in, you know, sound physics in, in a sense, at least for, for passenger vehicles. I think this is, this is, is true. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, you're, you're driving your motors with electricity uh, and, and hydrogen is, is one step upstream of those electrons and you're going to take you know you're going to take some efficiency loss in converting that hydrogen you know through a fuel cell back to electrons so why not just use the electrons and batteries <laughs> i think you know the for passenger cars i think i you know still firmly believe that's that's true and you have the further like never mind the efficiency arguments and and all the you know the technical reasons you have the problem of infrastructure. You know, I don't know what the catalyst is going to be for building out hydrogen refueling infrastructure at, at the density needed for passenger vehicles. And that's the, the big challenge. And, uh, you know, well, <laughs> Nikola, amidst all of the issues they've been going through recently, the, the, the most recent one, you know, related to, to exactly that issue, like where are going to be these, these refueling stations for, for those you know, for those vehicles, um, you know, I think that's that's the, the the real issue you have with with hydrogen fuel cell passenger uh, vehicles. But that's that's not to say it doesn't have a place for uh, longer haul uh, transportation. And I think that might be where where it finds its niche because you you know with hydrogen you do have the advantage until batteries get you know you know, really amazing in terms of, uh, you know, rate of charging and, you know, power delivery, which, you know, Tesla may, may get there very soon. But, you know, the, 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 the advantage of, of hydrogen has always been the, the refueling time. And for long haul transport, you know, fuel cells may, may make a, may make a ton of sense. So I think that's, that's an area that we're, you know, we're, we're continuing to look at. I'm not sure if we'll, we'll make an investment in the space, but I think, um, you know, philosophically, it makes it makes more sense there for meeting the long haul 
transport than I than I think it ever will for for passenger vehicles, just because you know the the infrastructure needs are are enormous. And how how can we look at this in regards to kind of the natural systems we talked about a little bit? I, I can come back to the you know the if you're talking about kind of nature based solutions and the like. I think that that concerns more CO two and 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 how to decarbonize, but you know, I, hydrogen, aside from what I mentioned about it being, you know, the, the, the feedstock, you know, of the, of the future, I, I think the other really interesting way of, of looking at this is, you know, as a chemical storage medium, you know, it, it's a, it's a way of storing electricity. And as, as you're, you're no doubt aware, we have, you know, the, the issue of intermittency with uh, renewables. Yeah, and, and and we in places like California and, and elsewhere where there's a lot of penetration of renewables, we have you know an issue of curtailment where there is a a huge oversupply of, of renewables on certain days or times of day, yeah. um, you know, much more than than there is demand for. And hydrogen is um, you know provides a a mechanism for for storing that excess electricity, you know, to allow you to you know if the if the economics makes sense, potentially convert it back, you know, with, with fuel cells and electricity, um, or again, just use that hydrogen as a feedstock for, you know, for making something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ammonia, ammonia is another possibility. We, we talked about, you know, ammonia could be the, you know, is, you know, the, the liquid counterpart there. It's, it's much more transportable, uh, than hydrogen is. Um, and you know, it's, it's being looked at as a potential replacement fuel in uh, in, in the marine space, as, as many people may be aware. I don't think many people are so, aware of that, frankly. I, I think that, that that's a very uh, very important thing to be aware of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, there, there's probably a great diagram with this already out there somewhere I'll, I'll online, better, it, better than I could. Yeah. yeah, with hydrogen at the center and all of the you know, the dozens of things that it can, that it can impact, you know, you've got, you know, ammonia as the, the next thing that you could make one step, one step away, um, you know, as a, as a fuel for the marine industry, you could also make greener fertilizer. That's, you know, another area that we've, we spent a lot of time looking at and, you know, most people know, you know it's very well documented what the, uh, the, you know, the, the CO2 impact of, conventional ag is uh if you could make a, a very low ghg footprint fertilizer that would be you know transformative you know we're talking many many gigatons per year of co2 impact so and plastic, all plastics the, and other yeah. types of uh, petrochemical based product yeah yeah making making some of the simple monomers you know from co2 and hydrogen um that form the um you know the precursors to to making those those polymers and plastics that's that's the, the direction we want to head. So carbon sequestration or carbon, um, uh, you know, carbon-based goods that are produced for, from the the pollution the pollution side of carbon when it's extracted isn't necessarily the only kind of carbon-based economy uh, option in terms of capturing greenhouse gases. You're you're suggesting quite a few other sort of hybrid batteries of sorts. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know so much about the battery side of things, although there, you know, there is a company that's, that's using CO2 in a, an electrochemical cell that is, you know, sort of like a battery, but the, maybe, maybe taking a step back to what I was going to 
I was just discussed earlier the you know opportunities around you know decarbonization the another area that is um, that we're really uh, intensely focused on now are, are nature-based solutions um, and you know we, we've discussed this I'm sure folks that, that listen to this podcast um, you know are, are probably aware of some of the more industrial approaches to uh, you know to taking co2 out of the atmosphere or what they call direct air capture right um, you know we've spent a lot of time uh, looking at that space we actually have a portfolio company that makes these these proprietary materials called uh, metal organic frameworks that could potentially really transform the economics of doing that and you know I think under the right conditions industrial approaches to get you know pulling co2 out of the atmosphere you know whether it's to make chemicals or whatever whatever we so choose um, I think that has a an approach in the portfolio you know of, of you know what they call negative emissions technologies but another thing that we're we've really i think come around to in the last couple of years is the idea of you know leveraging nature you know we've you know nature has developed over millions many millions of years you know very elegant solutions for, for doing this and um you know we have a uh, you know a, a company in our portfolio called um, standard soil that's um, you know, aiming to uh, implement more regenerative agriculture practices to help restore uh, grasslands in the US um, with a with you know kind of an initial focus on on um, you know, on, on livestock uh, grazing and you know beef production that's you know that that's that's one approach to it you know an, another um, a, another area within this you know call it the, the nature-based um, you know, decarbonization that we we spent a lot of time looking at and uh, recently made an investment in uh, is in in the marine space and, and specifically kelp uh, cultivation and you know I think a, lo- a lot of people underappreciate how much of a, a carbon sink you know the ocean can be or the, or the role that that kelp can play in that um, and uh, you know we we recently invested in a company that has the aim, the longer term, of creating these arrays that allow you to grow and harvest kelp um, out in the open ocean. The and, open ocean, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, these things called marine permaculture arrays. Um, the, the the scientist behind this, the CTO, is a you know, researcher at the Woods Hole Institute, and I think is you know is really one of the principal architects behind this idea. Um, and, you know, the reason why it's interesting is, you know, kelp is probably one of the fastest growing plants on the planet, or maybe the fastest, you know, under, under the right conditions and with the right, you know, nutrient, the nutrient, uh, nutrients being provided to the kelp, these things can grow something like a meter per day or, or more. Um, so, you know, as a sink for carbon, the potential is enormous. And the, the interesting thing about this this particular business is that uh, you know they can they can grow this kelp you know take a portion of that sink it to the bottom of the ocean where you can for all intents and purposes you can consider that permanently sequestered mm-hmm. you know it's it's not going to oxidize back to co2 for you know at least a century or maybe millennia so it's <laughs> it's it's truly carbon capture and sequestration not just capture 
where you have to then figure out, great, I've captured this CO2, what am I going to do with it? Right. What am I going to make with it? You know, so they, you know, you can take half of that kelp grown, sink it to the bottom of the ocean, and then monetize the remaining half of it. And the, you know, the, the really interesting thing about that is that this company, um, you know, can extract up to $5,000 per ton worth of value out of that material that, you know, the, the material that they decide to, you know, to, you know, to create products out of, you know, and some of the initial applications are in, uh, in biostimulants for ag, um, and the, the role that kelp and seaweed can play in that area is, is, is pretty well known and established. Um, you know, some people have also proposed using it um, uh, in feed for cattle, to, right. which actually helps mit- mitigate methane emissions. Yes. You know, coming to coming back to the you know, methane and GHG problem again. Exactly. Um, uh, as well as using it in uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, pl- bioplastics for uh, you know for food containers and the like. And so, the, you know, the reason why I mentioned that is that it's, and then why we're so interested in, in the space in general is that this is one of the few, what they call negative emissions technologies out there, you know, where it's, it's pulling out a significant amount of CO2 from the atmosphere um, that actually solves as a business without any concessions required at all. You know, we were talking about carbon taxation earlier, and that's, that's great if you can get it, or there's other... You know things like LCFS or whatever you can take advantage of. That's you know that's gravy. But we, we've always been a firm believer, going all the way back to the the biofuels you know era or you know the, the, you know biofuels 1.0. That yeah, with the you really don't want to build things like this. Yeah, you don't want to build a business. You know, you don't want to have a business whose <laughs> whose business model is almost entirely reliant upon subsidies. Right. And and this is a company that can achieve huge CO two impact. You know, it's not just carbon neutral; it's carbon negative, and it requires no concessions whatsoever. That's and right. it's a highly profitable business where you're only monetizing half of what you produce. You know, mm-hmm. there are, there aren't too many businesses out there where you can get fifty percent yield of your feedstock and and, <laughs> and actually make money. Wow. So. That, that's amazing. Um, that's a positive externality um, in the sense you have voluntary market, you can sell the credits, you have feedstock for other inputs in other industries, you've got a market. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, been sort of effusive about this one lately just because it's, you know, it's, um, it, it's it's hard to find companies like that. I'm sure there, there's yes. probably others others out there like it, but to me this is really the, you know, confluence of a you know huge impact um and um you know something that can can make money as well too because uh you know concessions only get you so far so jason you've been so thoughtful in sharing so much great information with people who i believe have probably not had the opportunity to explore these ideas so i really appreciate you i also want to shout out to camille richmond co-founder at hamama i love what they're doing um they're creating these consumer products that engage people kind of growing healthy food and such and i just want to thank you i want to thank your family office and just uh i'm really here to support so thank you for your time yeah, what can you, you what can listeners do to get in touch with you or to engage in your work um yeah you can look at uh, if you want to see some of our our recent portfolio company investments uh, you can go to baruch b-a-r-u-c-h dot bc uh and you know my email address if anyone wants to contact me is jason at 
at Baruch.pc. We've had amazing guests on the show, just like Jason Holt here today, and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available also on Google. It's available on Amazon. It's available on pretty much all the platforms, iTunes, uh, hosting primarily on Breaker, so you can interact with the show there. We would love any positive feedback you could give on uh, iTunes especially. Leave us a review and keep listening. Appreciate it.